Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist, currently living in San Francisco. Guest host for episode 8 is writer Mimi Nguyen. We talk about the evolution of storytelling, how the internet has our imaginations running wild, and social media's impact on personal accountability. I'm here with Mimi Nguyen, who just told me how to say her last name uh, (laughs) in the English proper way. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Mimi. I am obsessed with deep fried cheese curds. The best ones I've found are at the Minnesota State Fair every year at the Mouth Trap. They're classic. Right? So good. It's the first time I ever ate uh, cheese with ketchup. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was like really alarming when people were like, no, dip in the ketchup. And I was like, that's a piece of cheese. It's amazing. Right? Did you get it at the Mouth Trap? Yeah. Only yep. place to get it at right? the State Fair. I get really snobby about it. I'm like, no, it has to be white cheese. It can't be yellow <laughs> cheese. Uh, something else about myself. Um, you can find me on Twitter under Mimi underscore Dumpling. Although I mostly use Twitter to read things and don't post very often. <laughs> and both of us are recent transplants to San Francisco in yep. the Bay Area. Yep. And both of us from the Midwest. Yeah. It seems like I've talked to a lot of people who have migrated from the Midwest to san francisco (laughs) i feel like that's probably the majority of the city whenever i see a local or not a local a native i'm always like oh my god you're like a unicorn yeah (laughs) tell me what you know it's like a mystical (laughs) thing and they'll tell you the oracle stories of how things once were and i'm like okay (laughs) they're like you can always tell a native by the way they parallel park on a hill and i'm like oh cool great (laughs) tell me something else And speaking of people telling us stories, let's start off with talking about the internet's impact on storytelling. And one thing that happened recently in the Twitter sphere and Twitter history is hashtag Zola Adventures. And to give some context about this, if you have not read Zola's adventure, stop what you're doing. (laughs) Stop listening to this podcast. So Zola, former stripper, now artist, she decided to take to Twitter a while ago. It was like months ago, actually. Mm -hmm. And tell the story about an outrageous trip that she took from meeting another stripper at a Hooters Hooters. that she was working at, and they went down to Florida, and from there, uh, insanity ensued, and there was guns and escorts and pimps and people giving blowjobs, and it was like the craziest, most captivating story all told through Twitter. And then months later, the internet just exploded, and everybody wanted to know about Zola's story. And I shared this with you, Mimi, and I don't know your first impressions. Yeah. So I'm going to be totally honest. I didn't actually finish the story. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I, I was like captivated. I was like, this is really interesting. But mostly I was fascinated by her use of language. Because like all of like the vocabulary she was using and the way that her, basically she would put a sentence together, right? I, I, like what was that sentence where she's like, you know, we were just talking about our hoism. Oh yeah, people you know? love that. You can get that right? on a t-shirt now. <laughs> Aside her using Twitter to, like, kind of convey this, like, really long, complex story, and I felt like there was, like, pretty significant character development within it, Mm -hmm. is what you're talking about, that use of language where it was, like, very pop culture driven, very um, colloquial and incredibly... Mm -hmm. And, like, it used, like, abonics throughout the entire story in a way that... I didn't miss, like, a beat. Like, I, I completely understood the context that she was talking about. And, mm-hmm. like, I didn't really understand the internet's impact on how fluid it has made abonics and, like, rap culture part of, like, everyday language. 
right. in a way that like I don't personally use it, mm-hmm. but I see it and hear it online so often right. that when somebody just creates the word hoism, like I mm-hmm. understand like the complete context of it. Like it's like a dialect. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was like a whole new dialect that was incredibly familiar because of things like Vine mm-hmm. or like memes or Instagram. We're used to it more because we use it online more often or through texting more often. It's not really something that I feel like people use in day-to-day language very often. Yeah, and I think that, like, generationally, I'm sure that there's a lot of people, because Zola, I think, is probably my age or or our age. Mm -hmm. Um, She seems to be in her, like, late 20s, early 30s. Mm -hmm. And I do think that, like, generationally, no matter if you're from the suburbs, urban area, like high class, low class, there's been an adoption of like rap culture as like just normal conversational English mm-hmm. amongst like teenagers. Yeah. But where somebody like myself, I'll type and text somebody like that's on fleek. But I would never <laughs> be like I would never be at work and be like I've never said on fleek out loud. But yes, I've yeah, texted it. I totally haven't. Or I'll say things like that person has like no chill mm-hmm. on text, but I don't say that. But I just couldn't believe like going through the story, one, how driven I was to find out the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And then I just never thought about Twitter as a storytelling platform until that point. Right. Especially generationally. People can be kind of dismissive towards the impact that Twitter can have as a conversational tool. But I didn't think about, as we move into a more global community, like how does storytelling continue? Right. Well, at least for me and the storytelling, I got to a point, I stopped because I was like, oh my gosh, this is not real. (laughs) You know, it was so bizarre. And I'm sure things like that do happen, you know, but not in the succession that it happened for her. I was just like, this can't be real. And just the way she was so enthusiastic about it. There's just like, I had so much skepticism and I was like done. But also I think I stopped because of the Twitter platform, even though I was reading it like on Imager, I think. Yeah. Because yeah, it was taken off Twitter, right? I didn't like almost like the pauses or the hiccups that the break in the frame kept doing for me. Sure. You know? And I've always had this problem with people basically writing stories on Twitter. It's like, it's not really... I'm, I go on Twitter to read short, pithy things or links, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, either be clever or witty yeah. or send me somewhere that's not Twitter. Right, exactly. But I think it's really interesting how people were so taken by the story. And I it's because of the content, you know? Like, people are like, you should make this into a movie. And I'm like, yeah, this actually would be a pretty, like, entertaining wild, movie. Yeah, wild movie. Also because the internet has this ability to make anything hidden transparent. Like, the one thing that started... Like, because I was pretty skeptical at first, too, that there's no way that this story could unfold. These characters are not real. And, I mean, it's probably an embellished story. Or this is a person who is like so desperate for attention that they're, they're not like tweeting out all this crazy scenarios. But then the internet unearthed the characters mm-hmm. in the story and then they found the girl that she met at Hooters and her Instagram and, and spread that around the internet and right. then the guy who supposedly tried to kill himself because the girl Jared, I'll never forget that name now. <laughs> Jared, who was so like love torn from the mm-hmm white girl in the story who couldn't make any money at the strip club and had to start escorting herself. She and... couldn't make money trapping. Yeah. Like, trapping. <laughs> like, yeah, I like... learned, learned about trapping. Right? <laughs> I was like, I thought this was something you did with crabs. Like, <laughs> I mean, I guess they were doing it maybe with crabs, but like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I actually, uh, I read a lot of creative nonfiction, right? So maybe my radar for what is 
quote unquote true with lowercase t true <laughs> is a little more um I don't know heightened and uh sensitive than other people's sure so yeah when I got the feeling at least in my you know the my gut I was like this isn't real I like no want I, I no longer wanted to give my time to the story yeah because I was like if this is truly a nonfiction story like there in my opinion is an agreement between the writer and the reader which is, I'm going to keep it real, right? Yeah. And then I'm like, you're not keeping it real, so I don't want to give you the time anymore. Though I do have to call out, like, my favorite part about this whole, like, misadventure in Florida is where she was, like, essentially while the other girl is trapping, mm-hmm. she went down to chill by the pool. Right? Because, because she's in Florida, naturally, so she's got to get some sun in. I, I got to shout out that. That was, that was, like, really funny. There's been subsequent stories about how it's not real and things about it that are not real and and what parts were, like, completely fabricated. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, like, there was, like, a murder in this and you can... Some things that are so ridiculous and, like, illegal that there's right. no way that they could have come back to her. Like, like the police would have never came to her to be a witness. Like, what's the mm-hmm, what's mm-hmm. the deal? But people in the comments of the, the actual story, you know, like, where mm-hmm. it was revealed, like, what happened, the fans didn't care. Right. And they openly said, like, we don't care. Right. Like, we don't care that this was fake. We don't care that she was lying to us. It, mm-hmm. was, a, it was a story. It was and, entertaining. And it kind of leads me to how a lot of stories are being told online through like memes through gifs Mm -hmm. or gifs or however people want to argue to say those terms (laughs) or now through vine and there was a really to me funny story that was told about like a uh, a failed netflix and chill Mm -hmm. misadventure i talk about this extensively in a previous episode about (laughs) what netflix and chill is but it is the assumption that somebody is going to come over for, to quote Emily Eaton, a PG-13 night, but really it's with the anticipation that there will be some lovemaking, and that's a really nice way to put oh, it. Oh, you're so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, this whole story was told in GIFs or memes that use uh, Carlton from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Right. His real name is Alfonso, the actor's real name, <laughs> not Carlton's real name because he's still a fictional character. And, uh, <laughs> Thanks and, for the clarification. Yeah, and that... This this epic Netflix and chill like sabotage of this guy where he knows the girl is not going to hook up with him and just tells like minute by minute right. the experience in Alfonso memes right. as Carlton. And it's really funny. And that was another scenario where I'm like, am I reading a piece of fiction? Or like, is this person like in the moment just that clever? Mm-hmm. Like, That's funny because when I was reading it, I was like, that was a moment where I didn't have like my quote-unquote truth radar on. I was like, this is just fun, mostly because of Carlton. And I was like, oh, look, it's Carlton. (laughs) But also, I feel like the play-by-play of whether or not they're going to hook up is so... I can empathize with that, you know, (laughs) so quickly. Even though I I guess I'm a little too old to have ever Netflixed and chill with somebody. I'm sure that there was an iteration. Yeah, you know, there's definitely like, come watch the sunset at my window kind of (laughs) scenario, right? God, that's way more romantic than I've ever experienced. No, unfortunately in that scenario I didn't go. I'm like, I know what that means. I I didn't go. Every guy I've ever dated has got to be a fucking jerk by those standards. (laughs) I feel like I, I had the Netflix and the means to Netflix and chill and I just never took it and then suddenly I was in a serious relationship. <laughs> so it <laughs> never like, happened. And now like you're legitimately Netflixing and chilling. This is true. There's no hooking up after our Netflix is just like, uh, I'm ready for bed. <laughs> yeah, it's like eat pizza and Netflix and sleep. <laughs> 
But I wonder, and you think of the two of us have gone through a lot more like live storytelling or like storytelling performances and essentially what's happening online now is this like, I don't want to say competition, but it's this Mm -hmm. new way that people are starting to become accustomed of like receiving information and receiving fiction. Mm -hmm. Like is storytelling the same like when you see it or do you see things that you possibly have seen like live become translated into Mm -hmm. like things like Zola's adventure or yeah so let's say word for word Zola did that story on a stage live it in my opinion unless she's a stellar performer I don't think it would have done really well because it's there's a difference between how you read something and how you listen to something, sure. right? Or watch somebody tell you a story and listen at the same time. So like the benefit of having something being read is you have time to process. But you don't get that when someone's performing something on stage, right? You have to like totally keep up with them. And at the pace that she was going and using like the language she was using, I don't know if she would have reached the entire audience. Probably like a fraction, you know? Sure. I've hit a point where I don't like reading a lot of nonfiction online anymore because I feel like so often it's just trying to grab my attention mm-hmm. and for the just like, you know, clickbait basically, right? Sure. And then you're reading and you're like, if we're talking about storytelling as a craft, this hasn't been crafted. It's just the difference between a crafted story and a bar story. And I see a lot of like entertaining stories you tell your friends at a bar. Sure. Right? And that's not always what I'm signing up for when I want to read something, you know? And so, like, I don't really want that anymore. But I'm, like, totally okay that it's still there and people, other people want it. Yeah. I wonder what type of response the writing community will eventually have. The more short format is is not going away anytime soon. I mean, short format has existed for a really long time, but mm-hmm. short format as a commodity, as, like you're saying, clickbait, mm-hmm. that type of competition is going to exist. Either there's like a refute of it, and I, f- I feel like you see this a lot in the art world right now when in, in terms of technology, where a lot of artists and artist communities want to do just assume that what happens online, especially when it comes to art criticism, is like pandering. It's not challenging, so the community, like the art community and art critical community, like dismisses it rather than like um, embracing the technology and trying to shape it. But eventually, there's going to be a point where like things like telling a story over Twitter Mm -hmm. or creating and crafting a story through like memes with the impact font are going to be in like direct competition of like long format Mm -hmm. in like a critical sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm interested and I don't think that we could like necessarily come up with all of the ways that writers will like adopt that tool. Right. But I wonder what kind of conversations are happening to make like you're saying that short format thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, like Zola's story is very promotional, it's very self-indulgent, mm-hmm. it's relying a lot on like a common language mm-hmm. that is that's like okay too like the common language you know and like the dialect she uses like i think that's fine i would read a novel in that dialect you know like there are so many novels out there written in dialects right this has been done before like um actually some white well-known white male (laughs) author (laughs) 10 about 10 years ago because i remember this was happening when i was like in college he you know announced to the world i'm going to write my next short story on twitter and he did it and it was so boring because oh, wow. of the format that Twitter allowed him to use. He only had so many words, you know. And it just wasn't it wasn't a good time to read. But I can imagine if it was in, like, 
a traditional novel book form, it probably would have read better. Yeah. So it's interesting to compare and contrast these two scenarios, right? So like well-known author, white dude, writes like something that's been crafted on Twitter and it's not well-received. But Zola, who I assume doesn't have any writing experience. Sure, arts, you know? arts background. Right. She does seem like when going through her profile to... Have, like be very focused on like creative endeavors and like painting and there there's something artistic about her but like sure concur with you I don't think yeah. that it's like in an academic sense yeah yeah which I'm all for like I I personally don't really like pedantic writing or like sure. academic writing you know I think the whole like truth with a capital or no a lowercase t for me is what held me up from Zola but like I totally get why other people loved yeah. it yeah so in terms of how stories and nonfiction are being conveyed, a lot of it's transitioning into videos. Mm-hmm. And that's how we are consuming writing and any type of information that's coming at us. And you shared with me a video that critiqued Adele's new song, Hello, mm-hmm. uh, for being basic. Yeah. And you had some kind of visceral feelings about the yeah. new song. <laughs> yeah. So I mostly was drawn to this criticism because I completely agreed with it. I think I made... or. I don't know if it was my mistake, just the, the universe giving me Adele's song made a mistake. And instead of hearing it on the radio, which, by the way, I never listen to the radio anymore. It's always like Pandora or Spotify. Sure. <laughs> so I, somehow um, I end up watching it as the music video because I was really excited about Adele's new song. I'm a big fan of Adele. She has an amazing voice. And it's her voice that is the only good thing about this song. Yeah. Because the writing is so bad. Um yeah, so this video, this guy is just criticizing the song, and of course he mentions Lionel Richie, you know. Yeah. I, he also did this great synopsis about how all of her songs are kind of lyrically bankrupt, mm-hmm. and explained how the song is essentially like a stream of crazy girl tweets to their to her ex-boyfriend, or yeah. it's like a bunch of text messages drawn together and when I first heard the song was actually like during a stretching session at the end of like a bar class and it was like this bellowing like hello it was like oh my god this is like this song is like bone chilling and then I went online to see the video and I discovered that you are now recently watching The Wire yes which is again I'm I'm just so excited (laughs) like it's it's, I wish that I lived in a world where I had new Wire to watch so I'm like very envious I've got four seasons Oh, oh my god. Season four. Yeah. It's gonna kill you. Like, it's gonna kill your soul. Anyway, but there's a character that's in The Wire in the video, which almost made it more ludicrous. And then, the fact that the, it does seem like such, like, a tweetable story. Mm-hmm. It seems like a Zola adventure, if you break down the lyrics. Yep. And then she starts the video by opening a flip phone. A flip phone. And the internet took up arms towards this video, like mm-hmm. like the critique video did, but like uh, crazy on Vine. Other people have actually made the poor content into amazing content. <laughs> oh, I have to check that out then. Maybe it'll change my mind. Oh, no. It'll, <laughs> it'll like devalue the song even more. But something that you brought up when we weren't recording is you were talking about like kind of the memeability yeah. of the song. Yeah, almost like Drake's Hotline Bling. Right? Yeah. Did I say the name right? Yeah, it okay. is Hotline Bling. Yes. And uh, I had a friend who was like, what is Hotline Bling? Right? And it's where your phone lights up. It blings. Yep. You know? Oh, good. I actually was there thinking about that too. <laughs> um, and with that song, that song's like 
Drake's Hotline Bling became such a meme sensation that even like NPR was like, this was the biggest news of the week because everybody came became completely consumed right. with the, this idea of like making fun of right. the video. Still a great song. Which it's is, actually a pretty great video. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm I'm down with the video. I do love the meme though where he's throwing pokeballs. That's my uh, favorite. That one. was really good. I think that my favorite's the Wii Tennis. Oh, that is where a good he's one, yeah. like playing Wii Tennis and yeah. they have like do 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 yeah. because he's like kind of got like a tennis right? sweater on. It goes well with the video, yeah. But to go back to the Adele song, I think that artists when they're writing lyrics and when they're creating videos of music artists. I think they are thinking about like how memeable and how oh, internet sure. centric their song will be. And I think that prove that was what happened to the Adele lyrics is that people, ex-girlfriends around the world started tweeting their, excuse me, uh, text messaging their ex-boyfriends mm-hmm. messages of the Adele lyrics and a bunch of bewildered ex-boyfriends were like, why are you Mm -hmm. telling me that you called me a thousand times? This is super bizarre. Mm -hmm. But that's just like part of the marketing now, right? Like is the actual content. Like it's not just the hype that something new is going to come out. What actually comes out also has to contribute to the marketing. Yeah. I mean like you can't, just like the video that critiqued Adele's video, the content itself is not enough. Mm-hmm. Like somebody creating a critique like in Rolling Stone or, and like I mentioned earlier, like a lot of artists, art criticism says that this is kind of like the downfall of the critique is that it's now becoming this very uninformed conversation that's being had in a very spectacle, like sensationalized way. Mm-hmm. But then like the flip side of that to me is like the the creativity that starts to happen within these different like memes that happen Mm -hmm. from the additional content like isn't this like an interesting discourse or offshoot that can kind of happen from once like you you interject art into an environment and then the environment then kind of like a petri dish explodes with a bunch of other things right well to bring it back to storytelling online like that's a part of the story sure that's like the arc yeah right like we're given this consumable product and then we create from that consumption, yeah. right? It's kind of fascinating. I I really like it. I think that it's changed the idea of even who owns a, a story or who owns mm-hmm. how that content's going to be created. Yeah, so somebody um, once told me, <laughs> actually not once, multiple times, this is actually my partner. Uh, I, I like to write and um, occasionally I'm lucky enough to get published. Uh, but what my partner tells me whenever I have crazy insecurity about my writing is that the moment it's out in the world it actually no longer belongs to me yeah it belongs to the people who look at it and read it and digest it however they want right what you're saying is true and that i i think that we because of the internet have moved into uh, a society where like discovery is not um an exploration anymore it's kind of like something that you have to deal with in terms of like content coming at you like you were mentioning and there is like a I think a different relationship or at least a more expedited relationship with when a piece of content or art or writing goes into like the internet ether mm-hmm. and how quickly people can turn it around and change it and manipulate it and turn it into something good, highlight it as something great. But it's, I think it's also the way that like our imagination is kind of at play. Like I feel like the internet can be such a controlled environment, even though it's the most of, amount of information that we've ever experienced at any one time in our lives Mm -hmm. that can also be incredibly oppressive 
And the type of imagination that existed before the internet, like play and, and fear and excitement, is now translated into something that always has to become incredibly consumable. Right. So it's interesting to think about ways that our outside imagination and our outside like artistic endeavors mm-hmm. influence and impact these like kind of very clear systems of the internet. And you shared with me a story, you shared with me a couple stories that I found pretty fascinating about the way our imaginations work offline and the impact that they have on like now real things that are then documented online. Mm-hmm. And one of them was our fear of clowns. Yeah. And aren't you afraid of clowns? Or aren't you just afraid of scary things? Um, <laughs> I am probably like the biggest scaredy cat, which is funny because I currently writing horror stories and it, I'm forcing myself to watch scary movies all the time. But yeah, so like this article about clowns though, it explains or it tries to explain why people are afraid of clowns. And one of the um, theories that struck me the most was the idea that we're afraid of things that are familiar to us, but not quite right. Sure. You know, hence like crown, clowns look like people, but they're definitely not people. I feel like this actually reflects really well on what we were talking about before we started recording um, concerning how people portray themselves on the internet, right? Something that's familiar but not quite ourselves, especially like highly curated things such as Twitter or Facebook, you know? Sure. Yeah. No, that's a really interesting way to, to frame it in terms of, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts where the idea of us curating our personalities, it's not a new concept, mm-hmm. but I think that the fear of exposing who we, who we think we are compared to who we want to be, because I, we understand that when we place things online and on social media, that normally they're directed towards our immediate community, but really we have a broader audience than we've previously had and that exposing yourself to being vulnerable or sad or weak mm-hmm. it has such uh, a larger consequence now because the audience can act in a way that is not loving or nurturing or like not controllable mm-hmm. in the same way that you can't predict what's happening with this clown right. like you yeah. can't predict how these strangers will perceive you without your makeup right right which is interesting oh, makeup being figurative <laughs> right yeah which is interesting concerning like the makeup is really a mask right yeah and this article talks about how we're afraid of things that are wearing masks because suddenly your accountability is not there because you're not socially showing your emotions which you could say is what Facebook does but sometimes it's the opposite right like that vulnerability comes out because you're you're throwing something out there to be liked you know and commented on and if there's no likes or comments like that's in some way a failure of a post right so It's both the mask and the mask, not the mask. Sure. Thinking about this idea of a mask reminds me of, we both kind of found it problematic that people were changing their profile picture to have the layer of the the French flag. Yeah. And now thinking about it in terms of using this to expose or hide, in one way, it's a sense of fear. There's something terrible that has happened in the world. Our culture can closely identify to the culture that the tragedy happened to so in one sense you can feel like you're strong with your layer your Mm -hmm. your red white and blue layer over your profile as in solidarity and numbers and uh, unity and this idea of overcoming but then in the same sense of like masking 
your fear Mm -hmm. that you have about a situation that you don't understand or think could happen to you or that you want to be involved in but don't know how. Right. And it seems like a really weird stretch, but like this... Oh, no, I feel you on this, yeah. To me, it becomes really easily... I, I feel a sense of dismissiveness when I see like my entire news feed change into, I mean, it happened even with SCOTUS mm-hmm. when um, marriage quality was a discussion or you probably remember when uh, marriage equality was happening, the discussion was happening in Minnesota and everybody turned mm-hmm. their profile pictures then, then the I stand with Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. And mm-hmm. it's like this way of feeling like you belong and creating like a cohort, but then using it to cover something. Yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings about when people do that with their profile pictures, you know, because immediately I always suspect, is this like a herd mentality, you know? And is it to fit in and not stand out? But I also appreciate that people have feelings that they need to process and they want to express them in certain ways. And like, I'm okay with that too. It's, uh, as far as, like, masks go, though, like, how many layers is this? Like, you're putting a mask on top of your mask. Mask, That's Facebook, which is, in a way, a mask, right? That, like, the screen itself acts as a mask, right? Sure. What part of ourselves are we choosing to reveal, but which part of those are actually legitimate things that are part of who we are? Yeah, and if you think about it in terms of, like, that lack of accountability, like, the reason that people are fearful and our imagination runs wild with a clown because they have this mask and the mask eliminates that accountability. One of the major arguments about people doing that very low barrier of entry profile picture change is that it diminishes the accountability that you have to actually preventing something horrific. Right. Like that you can react to it after it happened and stand in solidarity after a tragedy kind of takes the initial agency that you might not have had out of the equation. Mm -hmm, And -hmm. I think that that's what becomes kind of difficult about it. In a lighter note, (laughs) Barbie has a new ad. (laughs) Yes. I am so excited about the new Barbie ad. And I love that it definitely made its rounds, you know, and everyone had something to say about it. You know, it's not perfect. I would definitely say it's not perfect. So I have to preface, there's two um, very popular Barbie ads right now. Oh, okay. One, uh, which I actually talk about in a different episode, Barbie is just making the rounds. Um... (laughs) where Barbie introduced uh, a boy in one of their commercials. Uh, There's a lot of things that are problematic about the commercial in terms of it is definitely geared towards a uh, high-end audience. Mm -hmm. The Barbie commercial that you're talking about, however, is definitely geared towards little girls, definitely geared towards children, and has a positive message about the imagination of little girls and not Mm -hmm. pigeonholing them into being homemakers and... Mm -hmm. Not that being a homemaker is wrong, but yeah. that's kind of a narrative that women have been given a lot, and this provide this commercial provided a lot of different narratives. Right, yeah. You almost don't realize it's a toy ad right away. It, it's kind of compelling in that way, and it, that's how it hooks you, right? Um, yeah, it, it's good because of its emphasis on imagination, and that basically girls, or anybody who plays with a Barbie, really, sure. can be whoever they want to be, and Barbie can help because, you know she helps facilitate that fantasy that could become a reality. But the whole time, I was I couldn't help but notice when Barbie did show up, I was like, Barbie still has her completely ludicrous body size. Sure, I thought that too. Yeah. And like, 
the diversity of Barbie, even though there was, this sounds so weird to say, but the, a token black Barbie, mm-hmm. there wasn't, it, it wasn't like an array of, um, it wasn't, it wasn't culturally representative of what the makeup of especially America looks like. Mm-hmm. The features of the, uh, Barbies of color, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. had, were still incredibly European, except just the skin tones were different. Right. Um, and, like you're saying, the body image thing, it's like, yes, if you're a woman, you can be a vet or a doctor or a scientist, but you better look good. <laughs> yeah, right? You Like, you can be a vet, but you'll never look like Barbie being a vet. Yeah. That's just not attainable, you know? And that's weirdly disappointing. Sure. I... When I was younger, I was given an Asian Barbie doll. This is like when I was in kindergarten. And I remember not wanting to play with her because I had a blonde Barbie doll as well. And someone asked me, like, why don't you play with the Asian Barbie doll? Someone had given it to me as a birthday gift, right? And I'm like, well, because she's not the Barbie in the commercials. Sure. Like, she's not what I wanted, you know? And I'm like, now when I'm older and I try to reflect on that and apply it to this commercial, you know, it's like, I don't know, like, how do I, I want to say this commercial is a good step forward, but I feel like I should still constantly point at the fact that Barbie's shape has not changed. Yeah. I think what what the commercial is indicative of, though, is we started this, this portion of the conversation about, like, how people's imagination and thoughts and, and all their feels kind of translate online and what's the internet's impact on then again what happens offline mm-hmm. um and i don't think that even the the small progressive step that this barbie commercial has made would happen if there wasn't so many critical conversations that people were having online right so it's now it's like kind of like this weird cyclical thing where we children have imagination and play and then that play highlights things that are wrong with our contemporary society then online, we talk about what's wrong with the contemporary society mm-hmm. that then influences Mattel to then change something about Barbie's messaging. Right. And then it's like, I, I guess, like, how many times that we'll have to cycle right, right. <laughs> before Barbie, you know, gets a little junk in her trunk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be really interesting to see if that happened, like, in our lifetime. Because I honestly don't feel like Barbie's going anywhere. Like, she's just so iconic, right? Yeah. So I just hope for the best. Um, Yeah, I mean, the internet has been amazing with conversations concerning, like, feminism, but also, like, things that are problematic with the way we tell stories concerning women, you know? Um, Sure. For example, like, the new, or not so new anymore, but the most recent Disney film, Frozen, where it's two sisters, you know, and, like, have you seen this movie? I have not seen Frozen. Oh, Oh, man. It's good. <laughs> I really like it. But it's really good. It's about two sisters, you know, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but it emphasizes... <laughs> I, think, I think it's okay. <laughs> it emphasizes um, how, like, you don't necessarily need, you know, a man to save you. It could be your sister. You sure. Know? It could be a, a strong feminine yeah. character. And I don't think that would have happened character. if people... If there weren't books and internet conversations about how problematic the Disney princesses are. You know, I think that the internet has created a platform that questions a lot of the ways that we traditionally think about a lot of different systems that we participate in. And what I find interesting about the way our imagination is manipulated offline by online is that hearing the sentiment of can't control the way 
you were raised and you can't control the way your imagination kind of lets things unfold. Mm-hmm. Where I think that the internet is kind of showing us actually the way that you were raised and the way like all of these things are rooted in some systemic problems Mm -hmm. and that we needed a platform to have these discussions with multiple communities Mm -hmm. so we could hear other people's perspectives on maybe things that we have individually thought but didn't have a physical community to support uh, the notion of something radical or different. Right. And this also goes for the more ludicrous things that people engage in Mm -hmm. online and offline in terms of uh, we can allow our imaginations to then create like real political uh, agendas off of like very fictitious things. And one thing that you shared with me is that the Department of Defense has a zombie apocalypse plan. Right? <laughs> I'm actually kind of pleased that this exists, to be honest. I really am pleased. Like, I mean, at least, you know. <laughs> They're listening in some way. Um, but yeah, like, zombies are everywhere. And I am not complaining. I love The Walking Dead. I love it when, like, Twitter explodes. Like, is Glenn alive? I really want to know if Glenn is alive. I haven't watched the most recent episode, so, like, if you have, don't tell me. I have. I do not watch The Walking Dead. Oh, really? <laughs> um, you know, I will say that Shaun of the Dead and 28 Days Later and all of my boyfriends, not boyfriends, but boyfriends, <laughs> Um, have ruined zombie and zombie apocalypse-like scenarios for me. No! Uh, Anecdotally, after Shaun of the Dead, a friend of mine literally painted his bathroom to have, like, handprints, like, in red all over it. And then uh, constant conversations I endured about who of our friends would survive the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) I love those. (laughs) Here's the deal. My friends are a bunch of fat nerds. (laughs) None of us are surviving the zombie apocalypse. And the minute the internet goes out, I'm going to jump out the window. Like, I'm like, game over. Like, what? I can't have running water and electricity and I have to run all the time? I'm out. Like, I will tell you the first person who's not surviving the zombie apocalypse, and it's me. So I guess I'm glad that the Department of Defense has some type of... Right? They've got you covered, Leah. It's all good. Yeah, but it's just, I don't know. It's Zombies are all over the internet. There's movies. There's books now. You know, there are people who talk about how something like the zombie apocalypse could happen. Basically, some kind of plague-like scenario, right? Um... But it took all this conversation and all this media coverage. And, like, mania. Right, yeah. To go around it. Though, I think that this is, like, a really fun example of... I I mean, even though, I mean, like, real money was put towards a defense plan to stop the zombie apocalypse. But I think this also highlights a way where people's imagination in, like, a negative manner can also um, kind of run rampant and create conversations that are based out of fear. I think that both of us might live in a a social media world where we see very progressive conversations. And then I like to sometimes like stroll over to Twitter and sometimes put a hashtag that might seem like somewhat racist or could possibly bend either way, like hashtag Syria Mm -hmm. right now after the attacks in Paris. And then get a nice soothing, <laughs> soothing is the wrong word, uh, nice abrasive reality check mm-hmm. where people's imaginations of what actually happens within the world and who is causing it then show the complete negativity and hate mm-hmm. that 
then conjures other real political policies. Because there's been a lot of discussion about different Republican politicians throughout the country now coming out with like really strict immigration statements Mm -hmm. about Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. And it's like the same, like the Walking Dead, except we didn't take humor to it. I don't know. It's, It's kind of weird... I feel like, and I mentioned this already, that the internet kind of responds to things in, like, more tangible ways, you know, like, with, like, a tangible piece of content that has to have, like, an agenda and a rhetoric and Mm -hmm. a purpose, entertainment, clickability, and the internet becomes this, like, funnel of all the stuff that we, because there's no online and offline life anymore, so then whatever starts happening offline within conversations then manifests itself and then, like, archives itself as these like points can you mean like an online and offline at least in the united states like in the united states but like i just mean like in like in our existence i think that there's there's places in the world who still have an offline life because they don't have the means of technology but in a first world um existence there was a time in our lives where if you did something online it didn't really have real world repercussions and Mm -hmm. it didn't feel like reality like it was virtual reality we literally used to call it virtual reality mm-hmm. i don't think that that's a thing anymore no there's actually a really interesting type of accountability now for what you put online but it's also it also like steers people in how they post things you know like i had a conversation with someone i know a couple months ago and he was talking about how um he was really upset about the lion that was shot um cecil the lion sure right or Cecil. Cecil, Cecil. That lion that got got. Right. You know, he (laughs) he posted something about it and how upset he was because he's a lover of animals. And his Facebook friends, several of them, kind of criticized him being like, you know, why do you care so much about this lion when, you know, black lives matter and you haven't really said anything about that, right? And he was so like, I just wanted to talk about this lion, you know? But the community he he has online wanted to hold him accountable for something else, you know? Sure. Which I find really interesting. It's like, now when I post things, I can't help but think about how are people going to receive this? Am I ready to basically get into a discussion? Yeah, defend your defend the reason why you're posting it. Right. I think the accountability is good. Because mm-hmm. I think that because we're so used to existing previously in communities that were very... Like, you surround yourself with people who are going to support you. And you surround yourself with like-minded people. And you do it online. Like, mm-hmm. you as in the universal you. Mm-hmm. We do it online as well. Mm-hmm. But because of what you're saying that, like, you can't always control that audience or that audience's opinion. And even though I think that we've moved out of a place where the internet was once known as somewhere that gives you anonymity, mm-hmm. it no longer does that. But people still feel like they have the agency of, like, I can say this to you through this mediated platform Mm -hmm. where I wonder how many times people were engaged in conversations and like the Cecil the Lion one I saw that a lot where why would you give a shit about this lion in Africa when like human beings are dying Mm -hmm. which is unfair you can care about things and have a duality to you right I wonder how many times in quote-unquote the real world where somebody says something but because there's that face-to-face interaction somebody wanted to confront you but didn't 
Yeah, because that mask isn't there, yeah. right? The mask of the screen. Like all of these things, it's a gift and a curse. Like everything that we do in life, it's it's got everything has pluses and minuses. And it's just like we when you first when we when the internet first was introduced, it just was a, a different place than it is now. And now that it mirrors real life, but has that mediation, we're starting to. I feel like it's challenging a lot of people to have to. Th- be more calculated and thoughtful about what they do. So in some ways, the experience of being overly critical and calculated about what you do is kind of detrimental in building relationships and expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. But then in other ways, where a lot of like bigotry and racism and closed-mindedness could be tolerated, you're now in a space where like you can't do that without the repercussions of a community dissecting why you said what you said and what you did right and the fact that like even if you delete it's always there forever (laughs) yeah as we saw with the zola story (laughs) (laughs) yeah because she she tried to delete it it. yeah Uh, i actually have this conversation every now and then with different people basically you know like how we portray ourselves specifically on facebook but i guess it applies to any kind of social media right yeah um and i know people who curate their Facebook page, for example, because they like to go on Facebook and just relax after a day of work, right? Sure. And specifically... Right, yeah. And specifically... I do it in the morning. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, I do it when I'm on the toilet a lot. Oh. <laughs> I don't understand why all bathrooms don't come with little shelves for your phone right now. <laughs> it's like so unsanitary, but I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah, people who don't specifically don't post political things, right? And, you know, that's fine, and I'm t- I totally understand that, but it's funny when you add everybody else, so suddenly, what if I didn't know if a certain friend of mine doesn't post political things because she only wants to have a good time when she's on Facebook? Suddenly, I'm judging her for not commenting sure. on, like, the social climate, you know? And I feel that personally a lot too, especially, I think, I guess this is a good time to say I'm Vietnamese American, you know, <laughs> I feel like anytime, it so, only took us like 40 minutes, right? <laughs> I feel like anytime there's big news about an Asian person or topics concerning being Asian, I feel a responsibility to post something and say how I feel. And partly because, and I'll admit it, like a large part of my friends on Facebook are white. I I went to college in the Midwest, and I was in the Midwest for almost 11 years, you know, and, like, I don't know if people know I don't usually like to admit that I was in the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) But I grew up in Southern California, you know, and, like, I still, and I notice that when I post these things, like, if I have an opinion about, like, something concerning being Asian, right, a lot of my friends that I grew up with in Southern California will have no comment or not even like the post, which is fine. Like, I don't need that, like, some other people do, but... A lot of the people I know in the Midwest will, you know? And maybe it's because that conversation is more important to that region right now because growing up in Southern California, there's so much diversity. You don't even really need to talk about it as much as maybe these other places do. And it's kind of funny because, you know, my mom married a white guy and I have a brother and sister who are biracial. And I ask them all the time, I'm like, what's it like being biracial? And my brother and sister are just like, oh, like, I don't know. I don't really think about it. Because they've been in Southern California this whole time, which is fine. I want them to be, like, sheltered, you know? But, like, I was like, no, this is, like, a thing in other places. But they don't They don't really yeah, think about it. Yeah, it's not part of their reality. And we talked about imagination. And now thinking about, like, the, the 
there is like the reality of the situation, all of these situations that we're talking about. And even if they're spurned from people's imagination running wild or people's misconceptions or fears or, or all of these untangible things, there's a lot of like real world implications that happen based off of the way these things manifest online. And you shared with me this article about how we use language and not just online, but in general in terms mm-hmm. of speaking about terrorism. Mm-hmm. And most people identify with the terrorist attacks that are happening around the world with the, and even now after reading this article saying the Islamic group ISIS Mm -hmm. and why that's so problematic in terms of the reality of the situation is, is this group that is committing all these like horrific terroristic attacks are a subset of people who have a deranged notion of what a specific religion means or what they mean in it or what, they feel they're entitled to within this world. Mm -hmm. But attaching the word Islam to this particular group implies and implicates every Muslim or Islamic person within that system. And it breeds, the reality of using that word Mm -hmm. breeds a very negative and racist and... A lot of fear. Yeah, towards a group of people that have nothing to do with the group. And um, there, there was a word that in the article that they were like, we should use and... Neither of us know how to pronounce it correctly because the internet didn't speak to us. We had to read it. <laughs> I'm assuming it's uh, Daesh or Daesh. I in my head I kept reading Dash. Dash, maybe it's Dash. I, it could it could be so many things because I think I'm applying Western reading um, tactics to it when it's not a Western word necessarily. Yeah. So this particular word that neither of us know how to properly pronounce is an acronym of what the terrorist group's actual name is. Yeah, their full Arabic name. So that's interesting. So Dash, or I'm just going to say Dash until someone tells me differently yeah, or you, I actually go can, and look it up. <laughs> anybody can tweet yeah. at and the internet and tell us how to <laughs> properly say this. But that's interesting that it's basically a new word then. Yeah. Because it's not even like so many acronyms all capitalized. It's written with only one capital letter at the beginning. Sure. Almost like... It is a name, you know, a proper name. Words are so important, you know, and how we use them, we should use them responsibly. And I, I'm, I mean, that's a kind of hypocritical of me because I can't even say I use them responsibly all the time. Yeah. I'm really, I don't know if enthusiastic is the right word, but I feel enthusiastic about this discussion that I've been seeing a lot online to call ISIS Dash. And it's problematic because at the beginning now, we always have to say ISIS, like, I'm replacing ISIS with Dash, right? Sure. You have to explain. But maybe one day you no longer have to do that, right? Yeah, and how quickly things, like how the internet expedites conversations, I, I feel like the more people participate in the right behavior in something, we start to see it adopted much faster because I think for two reasons. One, I think that we're moving into what I hope is a much more socially conscious global community. And then on the other side is this fear of looking like you're on the wrong side of history or the wrong side of a political issue or just like where you're saying like somebody could call you out mm-hmm. for being insensitive to something will also... So the internet helps guilt people <laughs> yeah, into really. doing what what is uh, right. Um, but yeah, I am grateful for the internet allowing people to have conversations about basically being respectable and sensitive yeah. You know, like I get really upset sometimes when people talk about political correctness and how they're so annoyed by it or whatever, right? And in my mind, political correctness 
it's not really political correctness. Like, you're just being polite. Yeah, I, I listened to um, an interesting podcast where the conversation around um, people feeling that this culture in particular, millennials are being coddled and like this idea of political correctness gone mad and mm-hmm. how it's against actually liberal, like liberalism. And um, finally, somebody just point blank said, like, why is it bad that we would coddle somebody? Like, why is our mm-hmm. instinct always to throw people to the wolves or to be negative And that's the way you're supposed to survive. And it made me think, like, you know, why would we not prefer an existence where we can be coddled and supported and have safe spaces right. and communities to have conversations with? That's interesting. It, it almost sounds like it's that conversation is, like, accusing millennials of being soft. But that's not necessarily the case. Like, we can be sensitive people, not just millennials, like, anybody. We can yeah. be sensitive, polite people and still be resilient people. Yeah, you know? it's like almost like being soft is it's being equated as being weak mm-hmm. rather than like vulnerability is not weakness. What you do with vulnerability is what determines if you are a weak individual. Right. Which is reflected in uh, like how people talk about things on social media. You yeah. Know? When you're being basically called out on something, like how you handle it is well, and kind of a skill that it only exists now because of the internet. Like, like being able to respond in that way, like in a timely manner <laughs> and with a certain number of characters, right? There was an, another article that I shared with you in terms of some of the changes that Facebook is making towards mm-hmm. like how things um, remain on somebody's timeline. And in one sense, I think that there is a resilience and a um, the ability to that we are learning as a culture to hold ourselves accountable to the things that we say and be able to defend our actions and our and our thoughts. But then there's also tools that are starting to be put in place within these platforms that help eradicate memories Mm -hmm. from these past experiences and uh, at first when I saw that so what I'm directly speaking about is Facebook's has essentially a time hop which is an app uh, feature within the program that allows you to look at past memories um, on that date for every year that you were on Facebook and it created a lot of criticism especially last year for their year in review where people were being reminded of tragic things like the passing of loved ones or just scenarios that they didn't want to be reminded of Mm -hmm. and now you can tag that memory as something to not be reminded of Mm -hmm. and at first I was like oh this is a really smart great solution to something that really upset a lot of people and the more I think about it is that ability to change our reality and not remember those things that made us uncomfortable or sad essentially changes the makeup of how we remember our life. Mm-hmm. And what lessons can be learned from that? How dangerous could that really be? Yeah, it's interesting that this is around now because I remember when Facebook was first a thing and there was criticism that you know our generation, basically the generation of Facebook, was relying so much on Facebook to hold memories, you know, and um, something I read so many years ago, (laughs) so many years ago, it was probably a little more than 10 years ago, right? (laughs) Um, Someone said something like, you know, what's going to happen to this generation that 
only will have to recall their memories on Facebook. What about the stuff that they weren't able to document? Like there was the criticism that we're the generation that documents way too much, right? Sure. And there's a certain grace to forgetting things and that that's healthy to certain to forget certain things. So now like 10 plus years later, Facebook is allowing us to potentially forget certain things yeah. by taking it away from our Facebook feed. But, like, how healthy is that? I never thought about it in terms of, like, this idea of allowing yourself to forget and how that could be important. To me, this step of eradicating something that you once wanted to preserve seems more detrimental and, like, being able to be reflective and understand who we were at different points in our lives. I have a, So I have a ton of tattoos. I have the analog version of Facebook on my body mm-hmm. where like I have posted things on my body that at 18 and 19 seemed like a really great idea. And now at 31, I'm not as in love with the tater tot tattooed on my ankle <laughs> and the half finished night crawler that's tattooed down my leg. However, I do have these very distinct experiences when I look at these tattoos and remember what I was like at that moment to make that decision and who was in my life and why I did the things that I did. Mm -hmm. And there's this point where I get to see how much I've grown or see where I still need to do a little bit of work. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I think about this idea where I've been recently going to cover up one of the said tater tot tattoo. (laughs) Mostly because I have another idea that I find more important and want that tattooed on me instead. And I can look at it in the two ways of like, have I outgrown what was once there? Mm-hmm. But I'm not deleting it. I am covering it up. Yeah. Which with additional memories, with additional content. Right. So I, it seems like a kind of a weird metaphor, but <laughs> it's yeah. almost like, hey man, this generation, this is the tattoo you got. Like, just leave it there. And like, if it reminds you of like, your parents passing away or your breakup that's mm-hmm. just the rub like yeah but like this goes back to like how does a certain person use facebook right yeah like are you the person who you know needs that reflection and will keep it or are you the person who only wants to use facebook when you're on the toilet and you want a good laugh you know <laughs> like yeah. like people use it differently I think that people use it differently, but ultimately, it's still essentially your yearbook. It's your mm-hmm. it's your moment, and I mean, the person who's using it for sheer entertainment, and like, I'm kind of one of those people. I almost hide everybody that I'm friends with, <laughs> and only see like aggregated news stories for myself, and spend most of my time just leisurely per- perusing my newsfeed and reading different articles that I find interesting. So my on-this-day experience is usually not very fruitful. And Hmm. I'm not experiencing a lot of, like, memories where I have to be confronted with something that upsets me. Every once in a while, I'll see a friend that I no longer interact with or an experience that I can, like, remember that intrinsically was really awkward for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of the way I interact with Facebook, it's not always a true representation of my life so there's not much I need to eradicate mm-hmm. it, it feels odd to me that somebody would take the leap of putting such personal content online and it, it would allude to me that they're not a casual Facebook user or not using it for the sole purpose of entertainment I definitely use Facebook as a yearbook like you said 
And I personally wouldn't be someone who would block a painful memory. Like, I have a lot of ex-boyfriend pictures on Facebook that I'm just like, "Eh, (laughs) well, there it is, right? You know? Um, But I think on the other side, like, I think I'm okay if somebody wants to do it. Like, I'm not going to be like, you know, you're sheltering yourself. Yeah, I think that I'm more interested in people having a conversation around it. Mm -hmm. That, like, this tool was introduced. It's if you're going to think of Facebook as a tool. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to, and I kind of advocate this a lot when talking about social media and specifically Facebook, that to me, that platform is starting to become as ubiquitous in our lives as like television once was. Mm-hmm. And because television used uh, common resources, which was like satellites, it was necessary that certain aspects of television became free to the public to make sure that people could stay informed within emergencies or news or things along those lines. And Facebook uses the internet. The internet is, like, there's a lot of political battles happening around net neutrality because we're starting to understand that the internet is something that is a necessity in our lives. Like, having it, not having it is at a detriment. And I'm wondering when the point will happen that Facebook is, even though I don't believe anything's free and I think that they're a business and they can do whatever they want with their tool, I think that it'll eventually move into the space that television did where some aspects of it have to be just given to people and allowing them to have a voice in it. And when will it come come to the point where like major functionality changes in this platform that we all, like a majority of people engage with, mm-hmm. um, whether they do it directly or indirectly? When will uh, a product feature like this have to be a discussion? We're pretty far from that and it's a... Yeah, yeah. You know, but... Those conversations will be super interesting. It makes me think about this book. This young adult fiction book I read when I was in middle school called Feed. Did you ever read this book? No, I've heard of it. Yeah, so basically it's the internet but in your brain, right? And everyone like talks to each other yeah, almost like telepathically, but not really because it's the internet that's connecting you to someone else's brain. Um, that's just like what I thought about when you were talking about it. I don't know, like I have to think about that more, what those conversations will be like and how the idea of a free internet is... I have to think about that more because I guess I've always assumed the internet was free. Sure. But it's really not. I mean, there's the ability to get the internet for free. And you, like right now, everybody has a competitive space on the internet, which means like me producing this podcast gets the same type of visibility and bandwidth as any other thing that is created online. Right. But there's going to be a point where... Eventually, our financial systems have already migrated almost entirely digitally. There will be a point where we exhaust the idea of physical money. Mm-hmm. There will be a point where we... I mean, think about, like, we both live in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. How much of our reality and things that you used to have to do in the real world, quote-unquote real world, right. have moved to an online platform. Oh, my gosh. I just bought light bulbs on Amazon the other day, and I felt so weird. Yeah. But it's like, I didn't have time to go buy light bulbs, so I bought them on Amazon. As things start to move much more automated and completely having these like offline experiences move online, it does create a streamlined experience for our existence. And it does free up a lot of things that used to we used to find stressful as a, an American individualistic culture, mm-hmm. where you had to like 
run your errands and you had to you could keep your world so myopic and self-centered because mm-hmm. you did have quote all these things i've been doing a lot of quotes tonight you did have all these things that you had to do to make up your day to survive and we are slowly taking things that we have to do daily off of our list for survival like go to get light bulbs mm-hmm. go to the grocery store walking your dog maintaining your finances all of these things, are, and we're getting more and more free time. And I feel like as our free time is expanding, so is our conversations around all of these other systemic problems that we have been conveniently, as a collective society, ignoring. Unless you're somebody who is dealing with the situation like systemic racism or uh, gender inequality. But it's hard to for as an individualistic culture to attack these really large problems because you can get bogged down in the, but I don't even have the time. I can't even see outside myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the internet is giving us time. Yeah. Like all these things are giving us time. But we're filling the time, you know? Like it was funny because you were saying like, you know, we have these services available now, such as like me buying light bulbs on Amazon. It gives us... (laughs) These are very important light bulbs Right, (laughs) right, right. And it's because I didn't have time that I had to resort to that. Like, really, I could walk a few blocks to the hardware store and get it, right? But because of somehow my life has become so busy with work and all of my side projects, right? I feel like I don't have free time. (laughs) But really, I should have more free time. Yeah, it's a really weird conundrum. I don't I don't think that we're, with these technologies that are all infiltrating our lives, we're just not mature enough with them yet to, one, not view them as a novelty still and see how they're actually benefiting us. Mm-hmm. I think that we're still kind of being, all of us being led by the nose with all of this new functionality and ease of use. And mm-hmm. I think that we're applying our old stressed out mentality to a, a new reality that, we don't actually have to be as bogged down with, but we don't know any other way yet. Like, I, I mean, I don't. Like, It's like still at the puppy stage. Yeah. Yeah. We're still figuring out the kinks. Yeah. Well, with all this discussion about time, it seems like we are slowly coming to the end of ours. Um, mm-hmm. Mimi, thanks so much for joining me and having this like really thoughtful conversation that went in a ton of different directions <laughs> that we didn't anticipate, but I think are really thoughtful. I had a great time. Um, I'm so happy you invited me to come. Yeah, we're gonna, we've talked about possibly doing this in the future again, incorporating our significant others and reflecting on some, some old internet movies. So we'll have to work that out. Just so everybody who will be dying to talk to you after this podcast <laughs> is released, where can they find you on? line again uh twitter is a good place it's mimi underscore dumpling i would like to uh, emphasize again i'm not good at posting i mostly (laughs) use twitter to read things but it's a good place to contact me if you would so desire i promise i'm not as suspicious and skeptical as i am (laughs) in the podcast today but yeah uh deep fried cheese curds go get some (laughs) awesome thank you so much this was great thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed the show Share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter at and the Internet and on the blog at leandtheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash leandtheinternet. If you listen to iTunes, make sure to review the show so other people can find it.